This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? In today's episode, we will read the rest of chapter 12 as well as chapter 13. This is the story of how Abram ignored God after walking according to his command and passed into the land that was promised to Abram's offspring. Instead of staying and relying on God, he kept walking down to a land we can easily assume was more appealing than that which God gave him. That land is the land of Egypt. Let's hear the story. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. I want to elaborate quickly on the humor here. At the end of our last episode, in verse 9 of chapter 12, we are told that Abram continued on toward the Negeb. This would have immediately been recognized as the arid desert region south of the city of Jerusalem. So now here in verse 10, we are told that there was Ra'ab in the land, a famine, as it is often translated. Now, if you're anything like me, you might hear the word famine and immediately think of disease, because that is often what is associated with the word in English. But famine is more specifically referring to a general lack of food. Our modern use of the word famine reflects back onto this text and makes it sound like there is a great disease upon the land which is causing this great lack of food, and that disease is what drove Abram out. But the actual definition of the word famine in English is simply an extreme lack of food. So it's not the translation's fault, but our understanding of a particular English word and the way that it's used in our culture that is to blame. There is nothing here in the text about pestilence or disease. So is the Bible just saying that there is an extreme lack of food in the desert? Well, yeah, of course there is. It's the desert. This is exactly the idea in Hebrew, but it's even more pointed. It literally says that there was a hunger in the land. Abram walks away from the land God gave him toward a desert region, but he gets hungry, so he goes down to Egypt. Perhaps if he had stayed long enough for God to provide some food, he wouldn't have chosen to leave. But that's not the story we get. Right. Any hearer of scripture will instantly see this as a red flag, uh, even if they don't know Hebrew. We all vaguely know that anything relating to Egypt is inextricably tied to the bondage of the Israelites. Of course, if you know Hebrew, then you would know that Mitzrayim has the connotation of bondage as we explained in an earlier episode. And I think it is also striking that Egypt is a similar land to the land 
from which he is is from. It's it's familiar. It's like someone born and raised in Lower Manhattan finding themselves in L.A. Well, yes, those are very different cities culturally. A city is a city, and a city person will always gravitate toward the city. But God didn't command Abram to go from Manhattan to L.A. He commanded him to go from Manhattan to Death Valley. So you see the problem. Abram ventures into Egypt because of a lack of food, but man does not live on bread alone, right? The Lord provides his bread from heaven. The teaching, the instruction, the Lord provides. And like many of us, unfortunately, Abram is not putting his trust, his aman in God in this instance, just as the household of Jacob will also fail to do at the end of the book. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, Here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Many find this to be a rather humorous episode because it seems kind of bizarre, right? And it is. It also gets repeated by his son Isaac. So what is immediately striking to me is the fact that Abram is more concerned about his own safety than anything else. His main concern is is not that Sarai will be more or less abducted by the Egyptians, but that they will kill him. And we can't have that, right? Again, Abram is channeling Cain's preoccupation with his own safety, even though the servant of God should trust that God will provide. Now, this is certainly relatable, but it's still a problem. Do we really trust God? Do we have the trust that Abel had? And again, scripture is very tricky because for Abel, he ended up dying, but that's the name of the game. Listen to the words of Solomon in the book of Wisdom, chapter 4. Those who have done right will be at rest even if they have died an early death. Those who are old aren't honorable simply because time has passed. Old age isn't measured by counting up a person's years. Those who do what's right are quickly perfected and live a long life in a short span of time. Right. It's here that it becomes extremely difficult to not do the thing I mentioned last episode, which is reading our own understanding of a character that we know back into the story before they become the character they are known for. If we do this, then when we read this story, we don't know how to interpret it. We want to finagle some way of hearing what is being said while still being able to understand Abram as the righteous character we want and know him to be. We have to put all of that aside and hear the text as it presents itself on its own terms. And you know, we say that a lot. So what do I mean by as it presents itself and on its own terms? Well, I mean that the text is assuming that you, the listener, have not heard the rest of the story yet, and you are only hearing the piece that is currently being told. That's how literature works. The story unfolds, or even better, 
unrolls like a scroll. And we walk through the story as we encounter the words one at a time. It's not a map plastered upon a wall that you can look at all over and all around in order to see every detail of the total picture and make your own decisions. Of course, every author knows that their story may be revisited later and analyzed with the bigger picture in mind, but whenever the story is being delivered, the pericopes, the chapters, if you will, cannot be cut out and conflated with the later parts of the story when it's not appropriate. It is not appropriate to do that here. These are the basics of character development. In Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man film, we see Peter Parker chase after the man who he thinks killed his Uncle Ben, and this ultimately leads to that man's death. We already know, before watching the movie, that Spider-Man is a virtuous character who possesses many good qualities, but we don't read that backward into the movie in order to justify his actions, which are clearly being portrayed as incorrect or immoral actions. He starts as a broken character and learns what it means to do good. This is obvious. Nobody's going to justify Peter's actions when the movie is making it clear that he is in the wrong, but we do this with all sorts of characters, and it extends to biblical characters as well. I've heard so many people defend the actions of the apostles in the four gospels despite the fact that the authors themselves are making it really clear that the twelve are buffoons, constantly misunderstanding Christ, or using his teaching to elevate their own ego. Or even here in Genesis, when Abraham gives his wife over to the Pharaoh to be taken advantage of, we want to justify it. When he listens to God and goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, we want to justify it and say, oh, he knew all along that God wouldn't follow through. In fact, that passage, and this is a story for another day, I would argue is somewhat mistranslated because we are so uncomfortable with what the text is saying. In the book of Joshua, when God commands the murder of thousands in the conquest of Canaan, we have the arrogance to attempt to justify God's actions, and we end up looking foolish. We have to stop doing this. If we don't want to hear the text, then let's just not hear it. But we know that hearing the text is for our good, so let's put in the work and hear it as it presents itself and on its own terms. I apologize for the tangent, but we have to be aware of such things. These are the matters we must think about if we are to bear fruit worthy of repentance as it relates to us being students of Scripture. Otherwise, we might as well not hear Scripture. So what is the story telling us? You don't need us to sit here and explain what's going on. In other more obscure or poorly rendered passages, explanation is necessary, but this one is pretty obvious in any language, as long as you're getting rid of your presuppositions, and your ideas about who Abram is as a character. Abram is scared and seeks to avoid death, so he is fully prepared to give up his wife to another man under the guise that she is his sister. Then, that's exactly what happens, the princes of Pharaoh take her into his house and he rewards Abram with riches. In the Hebrew, it literally says, and for Abram he caused good, and to him were sheep, oxen, donkeys, slaves, etc. And this is exactly what Abram asked of Sarai. In verse 13 of chapter 12, he says, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. He knew exactly what he was doing. So Abram's wife becomes nothing more than an object to be bartered with because the Pharaoh desires her and Abram goes along with it. He doesn't trust God to protect them. Then Yahweh afflicts Pharaoh's house with plagues, and Pharaoh realizes what has happened. Then Abram is sent off with his wife Sarai and everything he obtained in Egypt. We will hear of the magnitude of these newly added riches in the next passage, but to spoil the spoils, I'll simply say that what we are talking about is essentially a mobile kingdom. This would be like a poor family from the Nevada desert traveling to Beverly Hills in LA, living with a queen of the hills herself, Taylor Swift, for a weekend, then obtaining a massive amount of the riches that belong to the other wealthy celebrities in the area, and then towing it all back to the Nevada desert. 
This is the kind of situation we are dealing with. Now, what Abram has done is not a good thing. We have to realize that because it will help us understand what happens to him as the story progresses. Please do not take God's lack of admonishment to Abram as his complacency with his actions. God is being patient with Abram. There is no indication that he approves of his actions. At the very least, we can see that the results of Abram's actions are condemned, but it is primarily his wife Sarai and Pharaoh who suffer. Abram was just told that he would be a blessing to all people, and here he is causing a curse to befall a man. That's the opposite of a blessing. And what do you know? The curse that Yahweh brings to Pharaoh immediately causes Abram to be driven out back to the place where he should have stopped walking in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, Part of the consequence of Abram's sin here is that it causes Pharaoh to sin, thus putting himself under judgment, hence the plagues. This treatment of Sarai also as a possession by the men is already at the heart of the, the earliest sections of Scripture. Recall once again the formation of Eve in Genesis 2. God's creation was not good enough for Adam. He needed somebody to possess, someone to serve him and his needs. Unfortunately, that's where women have found themselves in just about every society known to history. They are controlled by patriarchal forces, not only for sex, but to control progeny. After all, it's through the women that their biological lines will will live on, that their dynasty will continue. That is why Sarai's barren womb is such an important detail. No man has control over the fruit of her womb, not even Abram, her husband. God has complete control, and her womb only becomes fruitful once God wills it to be so with the conception of Isaac. And there's so much emphasis placed on the beauty of Sarai. Again, her beauty is something that Abram boasts about and that Pharaoh desires for his own primal pleasure. It's similar to the story of David and Bathsheba, where he is overtaken by the beauty of seeing her bathe on the rooftops. Out of passion, he has her husband killed, and then he sleeps with her. She gives birth to a son, but God kills that child. Why? Because God has complete control over the progeny of David and only allows David a son through Bathsheba when the time is right for it to be so. On God's own terms. And just as God intervenes in the case of David and Bathsheba, God makes Abram's trip to Egypt useless by sending a plague. It's a smack in the face to Abram. Surely the same God who sent a plague to Egypt can take care of you while you're starving in the desert of Canaan. So the moral of the story is that Abram's failure to trust God not only put him under sin, but also caused his neighbor, the Pharaoh, to sin. That's not good. This is the lesson that is being taught by this mashal. So we need to really pay attention to it and examine our own behavior. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he traveled on from Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great, and they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time... The Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, 
Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So again, I don't think this story is too complex. Abram and his family and all his property went back into the Negev, the desert region. We get a mention of how great his riches were with livestock, silver, and gold. And then we are told that he returned to the place where he pitched his tent in the first place, in Bethel, where he calls upon the name of Yahweh. And very interestingly, Yahweh doesn't answer him until the end of the chapter. Abram and Lot decide to separate their parties because... And please hear this detail. The land could not support both of them because their property was so great that they could not both be in that land. They have so much stuff, they literally cannot fit in the same place. So they separate with Lot choosing the land of the Jordan Valley, which was well watered like the garden and like Egypt. He settles near Sodom, where men were wicked and great sinners against Yahweh. And this is important. We can't miss this because we are told that this is what Lot chose. He's not just an innocent man who made a bad judgment call and settled in the wrong place. He himself chose to dwell in this land. Likewise, Abram let him go. The strife between their houses is an immaterial conflict and did not need to happen, but they allowed it to. And we will see the problems it causes in the coming chapters. As for Abram, thankfully he stays in the land God gave him unlike last time. Abram, to a degree, is starting to make the right decisions. I want to emphasize also the importance the authors are putting on this split between Abram and Lot. Lot specifically chooses the land of the Jordan Valley specifically because it's like Egypt, and thus like Mesopotamia where they are from. He likes comfort, but thankfully God's command was not to Lot, but to Abram. And while Abram does make the right decision to settle in Canaan, he does so only because Lot chose the other place. If Lot would have chosen Canaan, Abram would end up across the Jordan River, and we would have the same issue. And the early mention of Sodom and Gomorrah are really critical here, because it's signifying that the place Lot is going towards is a place of great sin, as Rowdy said earlier. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see i will give to you and your offspring forever i will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth your offspring also can be counted arise walk through the length and the breadth of the land for i will give it to you so abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of mamre which are at hebron and there he built an altar to the Lord. So it is here that Yahweh, the Lord, speaks once the disputes between Abram and Lot have finished. He tells Abram to look out at all the land that God is promising to him. 
Literally, the text says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, as if to imply that Abram should stop settling and hanging his head and becoming attached to his dwelling place. Then, and I think this part in verse 16 is very impressive, God says that Abram's offspring will be like the dust of the earth, but not in the same way that God calls Adam dust of the earth in Genesis 3. The connection is obvious, but here it is taking on a new meaning. God says to Abram, if one can count the dust of the earth, so shall your offspring be. Very impressive. God then says to walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for he will give it to Abram. And I am so sad that the ESV didn't include this detail in the rendering. I think it pulls away from the idea the Hebrew is trying to get across. In the Hebrew, the verb is in what is called the hit pile stim, uh, which essentially means in this context that he is telling Abram to walk to and fro, not just walk straight in a straight line with a destination, but literally walk about, walk to and fro. Uh, literally, it would be walk to yourself. It has an implication of continuation, of walking without stopping. The verb could be in a variety of stem formations. It could simply say walk through the land, uh, walk to this specific destination, but it doesn't. The authors chose this particular form of the word for it to say, walk about, or walk to and fro through the land, for I will give it to you. This is, once again, the attitude of the Bedouin shepherd, to walk about the land without sitting in one place for too long. And in the next verse, we hear that Abram moved his tent and sat, or settled, at the Oaks of Mamre and built an altar to Yahweh. He's maintaining this attitude once more. This is an obvious red flag but we can at least hope that he won't stay sitting for too long. And what's even more ironic is that Hebron is the place that is undeniably tied to shepherdism in the scriptural narrative. The word itself, chabor in Hebrew, literally means fraternity or like a friendship, familial type of thing. And it's the place where David begins his kingship as a shepherd. It's an interesting detail. Literally, he is originally the king of Hebron only, and later moves his capital to Jerusalem to make the city his own. Later in the book of Genesis, it's explained that the original name of Hebron was Kiryat Arba, the village of the four, calling back to mind the Garden of Eden. So you have the trees, the oaks of Mamre, and the town where shepherds meet in unity at the place of the four directions. The image couldn't be any more direct in the Hebrew. And not only that, Abraham later purchases land in Hebron to serve as the burial place for his family, his Chebor. The land was owned by Ephron the Hittite, a Gentile, and another prominent Old Testament Gentile, Caleb, is also given Hebron as an inheritance. So the importance of this place and Abram's dwelling here is incredibly important. So let's make sure to pay close attention to it when it will show up again in the future. Yeah, and I like the fact that you mentioned those two Gentiles, because while we continue through this story, we have to remember, we have to remember that Abram is a Gentile. He's from Babylon. He's being made a Hebrew. To be a Hebrew is not an ethnicity, scripturally speaking. To be a Hebrew is a function. It is a state of mind, a state of being. It is an obedience. Now, if I may, please allow me another aside. I don't like to do too many of these, but I believe that it is extremely valuable for us to revisit the maxims, the tenets, if you will, 
of our approach to studying Scripture often in order to remind you and ourselves of the matter at hand, which is, in this case, hearing Scripture. I've done it once earlier in this episode, but I want to do it again because we've become so hardened of heart that even though Scripture is concocted specifically to soften us and to save us, it often cannot do its job effectively because we are so far removed from it due to our experiences with the church or our culture or both and any other number of things. One problem I hear so much of today in our society regarding Scripture comes from people misunderstanding the scriptural God and how Scripture itself functions to communicate His desires and or expectations for humanity. Take, for example, certain statements like, The Jews of the Bible are strict monotheists, but historically worshipped the god El and his wife Asherah, therefore the Bible must be a redacted book to employ a certain political narrative. Or, God ordered the genocide of nations and the murder of children, therefore the Bible condones genocide. Or, God allowed X, Y, or Z to occur, therefore he must be apathetic at best and totally wicked at worst. Now, I don't think these arguments are worth engaging in on their own. If you cook a steak and drop it on the floor, you can quickly rinse it off and sear it on both sides to sanitize it before consuming it, and it's okay, you won't get sick. But if you drop it in a vat of vinegar and it sits there for even a few seconds, you can't really do anything to get rid of that vinegary taste that has soaked into the pores of the meat. These arguments I mention are vinegar. But if we come to Scripture and allow it to communicate on its own terms, instead of immediately writing it off because of some ill-informed hot take that we have about it, then maybe we can actually hear it, which leads me to this. A simple solution for a deeply problematic approach. Again, I'm laying the groundwork now because as we get into more difficult stories, these patterns and these tendencies that we have of blurring the text to make us more comfortable will become more problematic. I would love nothing more than if we could just read scripture and sit back, but I believe that it is our responsibility as students of the Bible to at the very least be aware of these problematic approaches and these arguments because I know all of us, all of you, have heard them. And we can't just ignore them. Uh, we need to, like I said, be at least aware of them. So here is my idea. I believe that it is helpful to think of the characters in these stories as children on the playground with a wise parent watching over everything going on, the scriptural God being the parent. He watches the decisions of his children and steps in to warn them, to remind them of what he has said before, to save them from destruction, or to do whatever he deems necessary for the situation, even if that leads to death. In the scriptural story, God is not absent, but he is also not completely present in the sense of acting with complete agency in and around all of the characters all of the time. That's why the wind is the perfect descriptor for Yahweh. It can be still or it can rage. It can cool you down in the heat of the day as it gently blows upon your face, or it can uproot a tree and hurl it at you. It is not strict causation or karma. It is unpredictable. If you go outside on a nice calm day, only to be swept away by a sudden windstorm, that doesn't mean you deserved it or that you did something to cause it. It just happened, and God caused it to be. Please don't confuse these ideas with karma or causation or some idea of philosophy or morality. 
The Bible is unique, and the God found in its pages is one of a kind and almighty. But people often confuse these ideas and miss the point. God is not subject to our human, childish concepts of morality and ethical dilemma. God is not your abusive father. God is not the priest who hurt you. God is not the Christian parent who traumatizes their child for being gay or transgender. God is the wind. God is Yahweh, the master, the proprietor, the almighty over all creation, whose ownership is good like the father of a household, caring equally for all who are under his protection, which is everyone. His payment is an inheritance that is eternal life. He knew we would lose our inheritance, so he came to us in our own clothing of flesh to create a permanent opportunity, an everlasting covenant by the blood of his naked and beaten body. And here I am sounding a fool because I cannot put these things into words. It is all foolishness to us. That's the point. That is why we have scripture. So by analyzing the situations in the scriptural story with characters like Abram and Lot, we can learn about what the most important character, the scriptural God, expects of us. And we can compare what we learned with the instances in scripture where God states his commandments explicitly in the text, all to come to a more informed understanding. Again, I am spending time on this because so often I hear people misrepresenting the Bible by quoting a portion of Scripture out of context, or they misunderstand the purpose of the section of the story they are quoting, as with the statements I listed earlier. Christians and non-Christians alike do this, and it's such a waste of time. Whether you mean it for good or bad, or to add credibility to the faith, or to discredit the faith, there's no point. If God is wind, then what use is it trying to trap Him in our empty words? We must have the humility of a sheep and listen to the word of our master, which we hear through scripture, not through a priest's lofty sermon or an op-ed written by a liberal or conservative biblical scholar, or through a motivational speaker's TED Talk or through a podcast put on by a couple of charismatic personalities, regardless of the good intentions that these people may have or their expert teaching. They are not scripture. And you have to put in the effort to hear scripture in what they say and avoid blindly following any teacher you gravitate toward because there is only one good teacher and it's not any of us. So here we are, I, Rowdy, and my good friend Blaze doing the very thing I am critiquing. We are no exception. We are no better. We have our social ideas and our own concepts of justice that we claim are scriptural, And the ways we teach are undoubtedly informed by those beliefs. So we naturally want to claim that our way of reading scripture is the right way. Therefore, you should listen to our teaching and not the teaching of those we disagree with or openly mock on this program. But please, dear listener of scripture, do not hear us in this way, even if we, by our own self-righteousness, ever want you to. We are all drowning in information in this age. And Blaze and I are undergoing our own process of being emasculated by Scripture so that we can be informed exclusively by and act purely through Scripture and Scripture alone. Our podcast is the horse pulling along our study, which is our means of accomplishing this goal. And we simply invite you into that process, brothers and sisters. But we, like everyone else, are hypocrites. So please don't listen to our egos. Listen to Scripture. All we hope for is that our presence is helpful and that your understanding of Scripture is aided by our study. If this is achieved, may we be forgotten so that all which remains is a fear and a love of God 
to whom belong all the glory, honor, and worship. So this concludes this week's episode. Uh, Before we go, I'd like to wish everyone a happy Easter and a blessed Pascha, since by this point, everyone East and West has celebrated regardless of what calendar you're on. We serve a living God and a living Christ. Just as the temple in Jerusalem buried the book of God's law and word, the Judeans attempted to seal Christ's tomb with a mighty stone. But just as God worked through Hilkiah to raise the book of the law out of the stony coffin of the temple, God himself raised his son Jesus, his word made flesh, signifying that nothing, whether it be a tomb, a temple, or even death, can bury God's word for good. God's word lives, and we participate in God's living word by living the word. This is how we should celebrate Pascha. Let us open ourselves to those in need. Let us be conduits of God's love and mercy towards everyone we encounter, be they friendly or not. Let us pray for everyone, be they friendly or not. Let us reunite with those to whom we are estranged. Let us give our excesses to those who have nothing. Let us see our own sins and not judge our brethren. Let us do what we can, little by little, soaking up God's word like a sponge, muttering his law day and night, as the psalm says. Never forget, dear listeners, the triumphant proclamation of the angel to the women attending the tomb of our Messiah. Christos Anesti, el masicam, Christos voscresi, Christus resurrexit, ta Christ ash airaha, Christ is risen. Tree, which is planted by the stream.